Before the episode starts properly, I want to let you know about a really cool thing that is happening to me, which is that I am publishing a book through Unbound. Unbound are a publishing company, which means that they don't publish things that they don't think are good and that they edit and they support their authors. The thing that makes them different from other publishing companies is they're half publishing company and half crowdfunding company which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books they can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering unbound approached me in december to see if i wanted to adapt my show what about the men mansplaining masculinity into a book and i said yes please i definitely would like to do that and so that is what i'm doing if you go to the unbound website and there'll be a link to this in the show notes you can find mansplaining masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book the way that this book is going to get made is by people like you pre-ordering it and pledging to it and people like you telling other people about it sharing it on social media recommending it to other people those kinds of things you can find out what the book is fully about by reading about it on the page there's a video of me in a purple dress and fedora with my childhood toy dolphin telling you about what the book is about video is your preferred way to absorb information but basically mansplaining masculinity is about looking into myself and looking out at culture and thinking about how masculinity is constructed and created and how systematic elements contribute both to the ways that men are hurt by society but also the ways that men hurt other people in society it is not a book that says that men are the problem but it is a book that will say that we can be part of the solution. And if you want to get an idea of what it's like before you pledge to it, you can listen to a podcast of the show that it's adapted from on the website mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. And also there was an episode of BBC Radio 4's Forethought called Liberating Men, which was a reflection on an extension of the show. So listen to those shows, see if you like what you hear, and if you do, then please do support and pledge to make mansplaining masculinity happen. This week's episode of Getting Better Acquainted is a little bit different from usual. It is basically the submission that I'm putting together for this year's British Podcast Awards. And because I'm putting that together, I don't really have time this week to put together a normal episode of Getting Better Acquainted. However, I did want to make sure that there was some new material for regular listeners because the rest of the episode will feature clips from three episodes of Getting Better Acquainted, which went out between January 2017 and January 2018. The criteria for it was you have to have clips from three episodes and you can't have more than five clips in total and they have to come to 20 minutes. So that for somebody who puts out an hour of material every week is quite a hard thing to select. 
I don't know if I've selected the right episodes. There were so many right episodes because I think every episode of Getting Better Acquainted has some great stuff in it. I chose the ones that you'll hear. They are a conversation that I had with Nicole, who is a theatre maker and stripper. Naira, who is the first ever black mathematician to get into Forbes magazine. And the third person featured is Pandora slash Blake or Blake who is a porn maker an activist and writer and the clip that features them is the moment that they came out as being non-binary which I guess was an exclusive although I don't really like the idea of being someone who gets exclusives but hopefully it's the kind of thing that might interest the judges of the British Podcast Awards but before any of that you'll hear a story that isn't part of that submission, a story that I told at the most recent Spark London that I host in Hackney on the second Monday of every month, and the theme of that night was hunger. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better, better acquainted with you. So tomorrow I'm going away with my partner uh, to celebrate our 17 uh, year anniversary. We're not married, so sometimes some people might not even uh, see that anniversary as relevant um, because we're not married, but we do see it as relevant. Uh, We're going to Wigan, uh, long story, but I'm sure we'll have a lovely time because uh, holidays are what uh, you make of them. And so are relationships. Uh, Relationships that you sometimes, when you have, have 17 years with somebody, you do have a long uh, road you know that you go down and during that time sometimes you'll be in sync with each other sometimes you'll be working kind of separately from each other but still a functioning machine other times you'll have little crashes um but you know you have to work at it it's a it's a it's a decision and it's a decision that comes with me and my partner from the fact oh, her name's Jen I should just get that out of the way uh so I can move on and not keep saying partner um but yeah so me and Jen like our relationship um has been a long time but it has been a good time it has been about friendship it has been about mutual interests mutual passions uh, and I have never ever regretted it um, although there have been many times when I thought she should leave or I should leave her for, for her own good but that's because I've got depression and stuff like that um, anyway so we're going back now uh, to near the beginning of this 17 year relationship uh, this is we've been we've, we met in the first year of university Um, And this story takes place uh, the year after university, the year when the real world smacks you right uh, in the face, Uh, the year when for me and Jen, uh, we were like, ah, we finished university, we want to stay living where, uh, where we went to university, we need to find jobs, let's be on, you know, let's have that horrible experience of trying to find jobs and realising that degrees don't really matter, at least in the short term, Um, and like so we found jobs that were low paid and that meant we had to commute in silly uh, amounts from where we lived uh, to get to those jobs 
Uh, they weren't very fun jobs and we were both generally we were in sync but we were in the wrong kind of sync we were both dep- quite you know down and negative and not enjoying our lives I was definitely depressed I don't know if uh, Jen would define her life uh, in that way but we weren't enjoying ourselves in fact she had uh, a permanent chest infection because we were living in a house with damp as well and we f- f- had kind of fallen out with the people that we were living with who'd been our friends and so it was all getting very messy and very un- unpleasant um, and we didn't really know how hungry we were for something different for for remembering what our lives were about what we cared about we, we we'd forgotten all of that stuff we didn't know we were hungry we were just like getting by um, and we went on a, a, a holiday um, it wasn't Valentine's Day it wasn't an anniversary but it was uh, a trip away together uh, to the Lake District which we were living in Lancaster so uh, the Lake District was nearby and we had a car so we drove in this car to the Lake District uh, and on the way to the Lake District we got in an argument in the car because I don't know my left from my right very well and I have to look down at my hands to see which one says L and that's not a very good thing if you're the navigator which I am and I can't drive myself so I'm a very bad navigator that is not able to drive which is the worst kind of bad navigator so we fell out uh, in the car and we started arguing and we kind of got out of the car and we were like you know pulled over to the side of the road in the countryside we were lost we didn't know where we were and we sort of stopped on the road and looked at each other and just realized that we were in silence and that there was the countryside there and that everything that we thought like hadn't known we needed was right there and we didn't have to have this argument and we stopped arguing and we got into the car and we found our campsite uh, and we uh, went it was it's always complicated camping uh, with uh, Jen because she really doesn't like it and I'm trying to prove it's good so that's always a complicated thing but we got through the night uh, and uh, then then that, the next day we went rowing on a on a on a lake because it was the lake district so there's plenty of them around uh, we went and we took this book that we'd got I, I was working in libraries in Preston at the time and I'd got this book and it was a really old book uh, and it was about like different walks that you could go on in the lake district and the map uh, all, all of the maps inside it, you know, had like different difficulties. And so we decided like an easy walk would be the one that we'd go on. And we sort of, we went into the town, we bought some whiskey uh, and we bought um, some slow gin and some damson gin uh, for, you know, later on. And then we put them in our, our you know, our bags and we went on this easy walk. <laughs> But it wasn't an easy walk. Uh, It was a really long walk and it was a really complicated walk because the map had been drawn a long time ago and actually the terrain had changed and there was cliff faces uh, to navigate and all sorts of things like this. And we only had, we didn't have any food, we didn't have any provisions, we only had the the, the hard alcohol. So we drank the damson uh, gin and we drank the... uh, the slow gin as we went uh, uh, over this mountain. But the thing is, it could, this could have been terrible. I'm not advising, you know, getting really drunk and walking near cliff faces. 
but it wasn't terrible. It, again, it nourished us in all sorts of different ways. We were capable of doing it. We were, at times we were daunted. We were like, we can't get down that cliff face, but we got down the cliff face, right? We, uh, like we saw a kestrel flying above us in the sunlight as we were like s- sort of stood on cliff faces. Uh, we like put stones onto a car at the top of the, the mountain. We like went through pine forests and we went over waterfalls and over like the rocks and everything fed us apart from any food and there was no food at all and we went on it was like an epic walk we got back in into the town and it was dark Uh, we hadn't eaten since breakfast and we went to a pub and we ordered like a pub meal and it was the best meal that we'd ever eaten in our lives not because it was well made not because the food was good or anything like that but because we were hungry we were so hungry and it was warm in the pub and the food was warm and everything was nourishing us and feeding us and like for me then when I saw the theme of hunger and I thought about you know what I hope for the next couple of days when I go away to celebrate I just thought yeah that's what being hungry is to me it's going to the Lake District and not knowing you're hungry and then it's learning what hunger is through uh, feeding other things but your stomach. If I'm going to have to kind of adhere to, like, the male gaze or, like, laugh at shitty jokes or, like, you know, be basically, like, sexually harassed, then I need to be compensated, like, well for that. Do you know what I mean? Like, if I was doing waitressing or if I was doing bar work, I would have to deal with guys, like, hitting on me and and be nice and everything because I'd either be looking to get tips or I'd be looking just to kind of keep the peace or whatever. But, like, as a stripper... I'm either A, getting paid well for that labour, or I'm B, able to say, actually, I'm going to go, and they can't do anything. You know what I mean? This conversation talks about lots of things, some of which you might want to know about in advance, such as sex and sexuality, racism and sexism, mental health issues, specifically anxiety and depression, suicidal thoughts and suicide, self-harm, and self-destructive tendencies. When I look back, I realise I've never had non-anxious thought processes. Never. Like, as, as young as, what, three or four, I've never lived in a way that is not shaded by anxiety. I've never not wanted to double-check something. I've never not worried about this thing or that thing. I've never not had this kind of double thought where, you know, I'm having a conversation with you and I'm thinking about other stuff. Like, it's in the back working away and kind of reminding me about other things. But I'm still here. But I'm not here. You know, and that's always been my process. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Nicole. Hello, Nicole. Hello. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, my pleasure. Um, yeah, we're recording in my flat, so background sound fans will be happy about that because it's generally better sound quality here, although pretty much on cue an aeroplane. Is that a plane? Yeah. <laughs> if there's a natural enemy of the podcaster, it's an aeroplane. So you give me the, the sentence of what your, what your job is. Like, what does, it, what, what, what does it actually mean to somebody who knows nothing about maths like me? <laughs> okay, well, 
I can tell you about generally what I do in terms of my mathematical modelling career. Over my 25 years of being a mathematician, my career is really to look at those problems which engineers and scientists find difficult. So they're saying, OK, this problem is too complicated mathematically, so they'll call in a mathematical specialist. So my job is to do the mathematics that scientists and engineers cannot do. Right. And one of the things that was kind of exciting to me or interesting to me about uh, the presentation that you just gave is you used, um, you used the phrase real world mathematics. Yes. And that's like really interesting because what everybody always says who studies maths at school is, I'm never going to have to use this in the real world. <laughs> right. But you use maths in yeah. the real world, like very, very strongly, like in the real world. Yes, because um, one of the definitions of mathematical modelling is that you look into the real world, you translate later into mathematics, then you solve that mathematics, you find a solution to that mathematical equation, and then you apply that solution into the real world. So that's why I call it real-world mathematics. Yeah. So no, And it doesn't really matter what problem or what field it falls into, that's what I'm do. I look at it, I translate it into a mathematical formula, solve that mathematical formula, and then apply that formula into the real world. And that's why I call myself a real-world mathematics. Yeah, so I mean, it's, good, it's, a good, it's a good phrase, and it's really interesting. I mean, you gave some examples of, of this kind of real-world maths that you've been doing for a number of years, you know, one of which was making a computer virus uh, for a Formula One car, right? Yes, yes. So what it was, um, that was probably my best um, six weeks of my professional career. Um, what there was occurred was that um, there was a company that worked for a Formula One company, and they wanted to get their program to be integrated into their Formula One simulator so that they could get the car moving faster. But uh, the two computer languages were incompatible. And so what they wanted to do, they wanted somebody to come and actually change it manually. And then um, I said to them, I said, well, you want this to be done within six weeks because it's in the middle of the Formula One season. He said, you want this to be done in six weeks? I'm thinking, I don't think that can be done because if I go for it manually, I will sure that somewhere along the line I'm going to make a mistake. Right. And they said to me, well, you're the consultant. We brought you here. You solve it. So I was thinking, man, and I was thinking, okay, what's the quickest way to change a computer program? The quickest way to change a computer program is to write a computer virus. And I thought, well, if I write a computer virus, isn't a computer virus like bad? Like it goes into everybody's bankers' account and gives the money to me. I said, <laughs> well, no, that's more like an evil. Why don't I make a good computer virus something that will look at the program and actually will create it to be the Formula One simulation, something that's compatible to the Formula One simulation. So I'm thinking, well, it would have to be perfect because if it's, if it's somehow wrong, it will corrupt it, it will become evil, so I have to make it absolutely perfect. So I thought, God knows the choice but to go for it. So I went for it, <laughs> wrote, wrote this computer virus, didn't tell them it was a computer virus, I wrote the computer virus, and then I released it, and it actually created the Formula One simulation module, which was then put into Formula One simulation and then was actually incorporated. The design that it actually generated was actually incorporated into the Formula One car. And also you said you, you, you worked with volcanoes? Yes, I mean, the volcanoes, there was a time when there was a, a volcano eruption in a, one of the Caribbean islands, and this Caribbean island was actually, uh, the volcano actually dominated the, the Caribbean island and the people wanted to know the policy wanted to know do you leave the island or do you stay on the island you know do you put the experience in the forefront of the mind or do you in the back of the mind and the, you had all like these uh, psychologists coming up with all their theories and saying well Nora can you look at the data and can you come up with some sort of mathematical statistical analysis to show the experience of, of the people who live on the island saying do they put the experience to the forefront of the mind or do they put it to the back of the mind and that's what I was, uh, that was I doing and hopefully that will let's say inform you know government policy 
policy of what to right. do. Do you evacuate people or do you keep on? Because at the end of the day, do you actually stay at the volcano and get nightmares or do you find it, the, the experience of moving away from the island you know, um, traumatic? So that's, and that was what I, was, uh, that's what I did. Gender in general, your work, your work has been within gender. Like it's, you know, sex is kind of very connected to that and you've made uh, work that's inclusive of different genders, different combinations of gender. Mm, mm. Like, so, so where are you kind of within your, your journey through gender? Mm, that's a really good question. It's a really timely question. So I'm, I'm queer and I've always identified as queer. Since before the launch of Dreams of Spanking, I guess pansexual is the more informative word but I like queer as a political identity <laughs> but um, I've always had well not always but for for many years I've had lovers who are trans and non-binary and I've always appreciated people who dared to disrupt the binary and right. you know there's so many problems with the current model we have of gender you know I, the, way you, the more you think about it the more weird it is that we kind of categorise babies at birth based on the appearance of one of their body parts and then assign them this set of expectations, preferences, jobs and prospects based on something about as arbitrary as whether they have an innie or an outie belly button. Right. <sighs> Never mind getting into corrective surgery, which, right. you know, is often done without parental knowledge even. Like, it's fucking violent. Yeah, absolutely. So people who are willing to be like, well, actually, neither... I've always kind of had my respect. And yeah, so I've actually been reaching a kind of personal process with this for the last year or so as well. I remember staying with my friend Zoe Montano in Australia and having a conversation about this. And I think one of the people in our group was non-binary. And I remember thinking, well, of course I'm a bit non-binary, but isn't everyone, you know? Like, I don't need to take up space in the movement. I don't feel the need to shout about it. Right. And I don't know what changed, really. Like, a year ago, I got together with a new partner, Felix, who was just coming into their gender queerness. Like, hadn't had a partner who really saw it before, but I instantly was just like, oh, no, you're definitely, you're definitely non-binary, aren't you? (laughs) And was really honouring and celebrating their femininity and their masculinity. And I think having those conversations with them really helped some stuff settle in my head. And having these really powerful experiences of having same-sex sex with them as well, like, much more so than I've ever had with a man or a woman, feeling really gay with them, like, definitely that we're the same gender. And that was just telling, because it was like, well, if you're non-binary, then maybe I'm non-binary. So, yeah, I haven't really officially told the world this as Pandora Blake yet. So I guess this is a, I guess this is a kind of coming out. Right. The first time. <laughs> um, but a few months ago, I did a Facebook post using my other name and well I've actually changed my other name so there's been a lot of change going on in my life kind of behind the scenes but started using a more androgynous name and changed my pronouns on Facebook which is obviously (laughs) this is all official now I've got they them on Facebook I do have a bank card that says mux as well so I've been gradually asking people to respect um, my pronouns preferences and it's starting out just in the queer scene with people who I knew were going to be chill about it and who are familiar with it but then you know, when I came out on Facebook, that entailed telling my parents and they have been so great. So great. The first thing they did was they phoned me up and they were like, so what do we call you if not our daughter? Help us get our language right. And it was like, oh my God, that's such a good question. That's That's such a good question. So we brainstormed it and it's really hard actually. Right. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, the best we could come up with was our eldest. But that doesn't solve the problem for everyone. So (laughs) I'm not satisfied with it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it does. It definitely doesn't help any only children. <laughs> no, exactly, or middle children. Right, right, right. I was like, you can call me your spawn or your offspring, and they were like, mm, no, <laughs> it's not really us. 
so I've been out as genderqueer for a few months right. and it's been really, really awesome. And um, I've been sitting on how to do it in my porn persona because I have this kind of hang up that a lot of the people who follow me are into my femininity. Right. And that if I challenge that, I'll lose a lot of Well, that's an, yeah, that's an interesting... Yeah, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Like, like earlier on when when you were talking about making porn, you said as a woman. I think it was a phrase you used, but obviously now you're non-binary, so that's and I'm and, not and a woman, takes, exactly. And I heard myself right. say that. Like, I get my pronouns wrong all the time, <laughs> right? But also, it's very interesting because although I'm not, I don't identify as a woman. So, just I guess I should just explain what being non-binary means. I to me. I guess so. Yeah. So I don't I don't feel female and I don't feel male. Like, I do feel trans. I do feel like I identify as transgender. I'm a gender other than the one I was assigned at birth. But I don't feel the need to take hormones and transition. I have days where I feel very boy. Like, I have this really strong gay twink streak in me that um, is like a subby twink gay boy who's a big nerd and likes being cuddled by his daddy. And yeah, I spend a lot of time in that place. But I also have days when I just feel really queer and really nothing in particular or like everything at once or something else entirely. And then there are also times when I connect with my feminine energy. Um, So I think because a lot of the sex work I do, you know, sex work is very gendered. Most people's sexual fantasies are very gendered. They want people to be playing a masculine or a feminine role, like very one or very the other. And so I end up performing kind of hyper-feminine, like mummy or headmistress type or like sex pot type roles with clients in role plays all the time. And I guess that uses up like my spoons for being a female. Right. Because like I do have some of that in my identity and it does feel authentic sometimes for me to do that. And sometimes it feels like drag. Right. So um, I feel like in the rest of my life, when I'm not being Pandora Blake, I don't really have any energy for being very feminine. Right. But maybe if I was doing less gendered roles at work, right. there'd, be more space there'd be for that more that space for that to come out. That makes yeah. sense. You were a child who was told that you couldn't be a mathematician, right? I was always interested in mathematics, even though I didn't realise that it was an actual career called a mathematician or a mathematical modeller. And so when you, you know, you're at school, you, know, you, you see your teachers and... Of course, you know, your teachers are somebody that you respect, you hold at high esteem. And of course, what they tell you is the absolute truth, yeah? You know, right, or, right, or, right. or is absolute knowledge, you know, that's probably a better way to phrase it. So when I came, when I came to the careers teacher, because it's going through all the pupils saying, so what would you like to be? And I said, I'd like to do something which involves uh, mathematics or logic or something like that. They said, well, they looked at me and said, well, somebody of your physique should be a boxer. So henceforth, they didn't even address what I was trying to say, they just steered me away from it and saying, you should be a, a, a boxer. Right. And for me, you know, I found that very um, discouraging and disheartening that I, it's what I wanted to be, I couldn't, I couldn't be. Right. And, and, you know, it, and, you know, something that listeners won't necessarily know because this is an audio medium is that when you're talking about the physique that you have uh, being uh, a boxer's physique... Uh, this is also a comment that's being made not just to a, a young man with a boxer's physique, whatever that means, mm-hmm. but to a, a black man, a yeah. b- or a black boy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're saying that, you know, what you should aspire to is only one of the, you know, couple of things that white people allow black people to be in yeah. society. Yes, right? absolutely, absolutely. So you were growing up, I guess, what... You're from Birmingham, right? Yes, I'm from Birmingham. I, I can say um, I have a, a Birmingham accent. And right. Is it OK if I can crack a joke? Yeah. Uh, it's like some... 
there was a Birmingham um, at Birmingham University. There was an English professor, and he says that uh, Shakespeare speaks with a Birmingham accent. So I'm the closest thing here to Shakespeare. Right. I mean, and fair enough as well. I mean, I, I used to live. Uh, some of my some of my childhood, I lived in Coventry, so, yeah, yeah, and my yeah. mum worked in Birmingham, yeah, yeah. so I'm quite familiar yeah, yeah. with Birmingham. And, and uh, again, like that's in a way, like that's another thing, yeah. kind of like holding you back, if you like, yeah, yeah. in this in this dynamic. Yeah. You know, uh, you're yeah, you're not just black; you're from the Midlands, right? Yeah, 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 You've got the wrong accent. You're yeah. not speaking with the 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 voice that yeah. people go, "Oh, that's a professor." Yeah, you're speaking with a like a, I guess a working class accent. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So you, you know, and so you were you were told that, and you and you believed that, right? Yes, because I mean, that is what you believe. I mean, things at the end of the day, at that age, you know, you're not cynical, you're not you're not critical, you're not analytic. You know, you you know, a teacher a teacher is somebody that you respect. Yeah, the teacher teaches you. They say they say an apple is an apple. Then it's an apple. Right, yeah. right. They tell you the truth. You know, why would a teacher steer me from being who I should be? Right. And, and that's, that, that was the thinking, and it, that was that was my that was my experience. That was my experience. So I I dragged along. Mathematics was my strongest subject, but I didn't have that absolute passion to it because I didn't believe that I was could be an out and out mathematician. So I ended up being very much a fan of mathematics. Right. right using an analogy of the football fan, somebody that watched the players playing football, as, but may enjoy football, may like want to kick about, but they were not the ones that actually all kick the ball on the pitch. They will watch the Ronaldo's and the Messi's do it. Right. They sit in the stand and watch. You had a, a section of your talk where you kind of listed a few uh, white male uh, mathematicians, mm-hmm. and like you, you could tell from the way you described, like one of them is like just writing on the board and then like throwing the throwing the pen down and like walking out of the room like yeah. a mic drop moment, yeah, yeah, yeah. like that you were like a fan, yeah, yeah. That you were like, a, and and he and he was like a yeah a great footballer in yeah, your eyes. Like yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't I don't relate to football or maths much, but yeah, I can yeah. understand yeah. the experience of seeing someone you think is amazing doing yeah. something like really coolly yeah, yeah. you know I get that yeah. and you, the other thing that you say in both your story and in your in your talk is that you know the, your contemporaries all kind of uh, were, were into comic books and you were into calculators yes but you also say that you know you were you were mocked kind of in a racial way right yes yeah, so, you know so when it came to let's say to the end of year exams I think it was around about year eight year nine uh, it's just so kind of happens that Oh, I'm surprised. I came top of the class in mathematics, and the person that I beat, uh, you know, mathematics, you know, always was my friend throughout the year. Also, started you know, mocking me racially, you know, across the classroom. And I'm right. thinking, and I thought, oh, and it's even though I can't remember it upsetting me at the time, but it's something that I, that is, is I remember stuck with yeah, me yeah. To, to this very day. My first night as a stripper, I was like, oh, this is just like comedy, you know, because like. I go and I talk to someone and that's like flyering them for my show, right? right? And then if they're interested, they come to the show, i.e. they book a dance with me and then I make my money, right? right? right, right. And I do my performance. Right. And as much as I might enjoy the performance, as much as it might be a great experience and it might vary from like, ugh, this person is the worst, they don't appreciate it, to this person really loves it, we're having a good time and anything in between, it's like I'm doing my show, I'm having a level of fun, but there's still a level of kind of, as you say, mining my soul. And then I kind of, <laughs> I, I make the money and I kind of move on to the next person and I flyer and I do the show and I flyer right. and do the show. And I mean, I'm terrible at flyering, so I don't know if I've managed to get very many people into the booth. <laughs> I was always pretty good, yeah. but I, I was never... 
I mean, even now, I'm still not the hustler that some girls are. Like, some, I, I, I watch in awe as some dancers, like, a customer will come in and, like, 30 seconds later, they're in the booth. And I'm like, how? Like, you're amazing. And it's crazy to me because I'm like, sometimes um, strippers go like, oh, I want to take a break or I don't want to do stripping for a couple of years or I think I'm kind of retiring. What should I do? And I'm like, sales. <laughs> are you fucking insane? Like, you've been doing sales for, like, 10 years. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. and you're amazing at it. Like... You should be doing sales. And also the thing that kind of annoys me is that a lot of um, a lot of sex work is what happens. The, the cycle of sex work per se is basically just that you can't put on your resume that you've been stripping or um, doing full service or doing cam work or whatever for three, four, five, ten years, right? Because people are like, oh, well, that's we don't want to know about that. That's dirty and disgusting. And, you know, you were freelance and you were this and that. But it's like, um, hello, I was self-employed. I was managing right. my funds. I was making my own money. Right. I was doing essentially sales. Transferable you know. skills in all directions. Yeah, like I was like <laughs> running a business, yeah, yeah. you know what yeah. I mean, on my own and still managing everything in my life and consistently making enough money there and consistently getting better and better at that job. But it's not seen as legitimate. So what happens is then people go like, okay, well, I can't necessarily make a transition to like legitimate work, quote unquote, or like paid, you know, salary work or whatever. So they kind of go, all right, well, maybe I'll start up a webcam website. Maybe I'll open my own strip club. Maybe I'll become a house mom or a manager in a strip club or something. Um, Which is all, they're all good options. But I think it's a real shame because I know a lot of sex workers that are like, the best business people I've ever met and like they should be out there like consulting for fucking huge big companies because they can do it do you know what I mean it's like it's just another example of people not seeing sex work as work if you're interested in hearing about masculinity and what patriarchy does to men and to all people then if you go to the unbound website and there'll be a link to this in the show notes you can find mansplaining masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book unbound is a kind of cross between a publishing company and a crowdfunding company which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books they can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering you can find all of that stuff over on mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk if you're interested in reading about me and my dad and our relationship and dementia and memory and time and history and politics and love and friendship check out my essay series down to a sunless sea memories of my dad as well as making getting better acquainted i also co-produce and i guess star in the magical realist audio drama podcast the family tree in order to keep making it and to make season two as good as we want it to be we need your help so if you can afford to then please do consider signing up to our patreon appeal you can follow getting better acquainted on twitter at gba podcast you can like getting better acquainted on facebook and you can find getting better acquainted on itunes soundcloud those kind of places But remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.